Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. This week on the Perception Podcast, our guest is Alita Drow. Alita is a futurist, as well as a nationwide speaker and author on strategic foresight. Through her work with Capital One, the Threadcasting Lab, a collaboration between the Army Cyber Institute and Arizona State University, and numerous independent works, Alita has looked at futures and implications that span societal, political, environmental, economic, and technological implications. Recognized as an advocate for including greater diversity in futurism, as well as one of the first futurists in the financial services realm, she is a proponent of using foresight to create actionable next steps in the present. Her co-authored book, What the Foresight, promotes accessible ways for everyone to think better about their futures. Let's head back to the future now with Alita Drought. Welcome to the Perception Podcast, Alita Drought. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's start at the, at, at the very beginning. Explain to us what exactly does a futurist do? It's a great question. Um, a futurist, you know, there's not just one future out there, but as human beings, we tend to think about an inevitable, you know, <laughs> undefined yet definite future state, which just doesn't exist. Um, so as futurists, we look at many different possible futures, you know, from the wild to the appropriate to, you know, maybe some dystopic one. Um, and then we comparison plan and look at the implications of each of those possible futures in order to make better decisions in the present. So what I do for Capital One is look at many different ways that the financial industry could progress um, and then look at what implications that may mean for our current state of business and how we can best move forward from here. So how did you find yourself in that area? What, got, what was your path to get there? So for many years, I was a design strategist. So I looked at how can we optimize designs? How can we make them more human? How do we make things that are consumable by humans? Um, And through that, I did a bunch of projects that were inherently future facing. Um, And doing those projects, you know, looking 15 years out about, let's say, the future of baby care for a client or, you know, what air care might look like in 15 years. Um, I realized that I needed process to supplement my inherent future questioning. And so I went back to grad school at Capital, sorry, excuse me, at uh, California College of the Arts. And I have a master's of business and design strategy and foresight kind of all mashed together. Um, And through that process, I met, I was exposed to the world of futurists, which is pretty small. And so we all know each other and work together. And um, I've been able to apply that process and just kind of inherent design strategy process to the work that I do with Capital One, with um, the Army Cyber Institute, which is something called a threat casting lab. It's a collaboration between the Army Cyber Institute and Arizona State University. So did Capital One have like a futurist position that that they found you or you are you connected with them on or was this something that sort of was invented for you yeah so there was not a futurist position i was working as a design strategist for capital one and actually wrote my own job description and said hey i think we need to do this um and convinced enough people that was 
needed that they said okay. So that was about two years ago. Um, and I've been kind of pushing foresight methodologies into all the work I've been doing that thus far at Capital One mm-hmm. um, and kind of like tricking people into doing foresight with me. <laughs> and, uh, and so then we kind of solidified it into a role and now I'm socializing the idea of, hey, foresight is actually something you can think about. It's a mindset. Yeah. It's also discipline. So I'm socializing that, socializing that around Capital One through various projects, speaking engagements. How did you um, how did you sell them on the the benefits and the advantage of having a futurist, a resident futurist? <laughs> um, well, I had to kind of find an, an interesting route in. So that was actually through the service design practice. So service design looks at you know, how humans experience a multitude of different touch points. And it's not designed for now because humans change all the time. It's actually designed for the future. So I said, hey, this would be very helpful in designing service touch points. Why don't we use this as part of the service design practice? And then from there, I started getting in touch with a bunch of different lines of business to say, hey, how can I help you think better about what might happen in your line of business five years from now rather than next year? So it's very much a grassroots effort. Um, and it continues to be one, you know, talking through and with various levels of influence across the company. You mentioned, you know, the the uh, in your in your first point about, uh, you know, kind of the mild to wild, you know, you come up with uh, things for, you know, only two years from now and then some that are just like, you know, totally like, you know, eight to ten, let's say, um, yeah. which is very similar to what we do when we're doing our film work and our technology um, projects as well. But do you come across uh, clients that say, yes, we want to be wild or very futuristic, and then all of a sudden they don't really understand what that is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard. Inherently, humans are terrible at thinking about the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it, it can feel very uncomfortable, um, particularly, you know, just to be honest, in a highly regulated industry. You know, we are inherent risk mitigators, so it's it's tough sometimes to talk about what might totally disrupt the existing banking system. Um, But I was actually very lucky in the way, in the timing that I came into Capital One because previous to my um, entry here, there has been a whole effort to integrate design thinking across the company, which is now part of our culture, which is actually questioning the reality of what we expect the status quo to be, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I built on top of that to say, let's take that a step further. Let's not just ask about what status quo is for now. Let's ask about what it might be in several years from now. Um, so depending on, you know, individual comfort level per line of business or per um, you know group, it's easier or harder to sell in wild futures versus, hey, let's just rethink how we're changing our business model a little bit. That may be <laughs> helpful to think better about how we are resilient in the future rather than crazy new modes of banking. Um, so it, it it varies pretty wildly. Mm-hmm. How would you say what you do is different than, say, being a forecaster or predicting the future? <laughs> well, does it I don't get know confused a lot? So I uh, I have to be a total futurist nerd at the moment and say predicting is like one of our four letter words. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we I don't know if anyone would love to say predicting, um, particularly in the in the foresight community, and I think that stems from an idea that there is no data about the future. Right. And that's kind of what forecasting does. So forecasting says, okay, I'm gonna use the data that I have now and just project that out into the future. Um, and 
that's just kind of not what we do. There's no, there's no inherent data about the future, so we can't actually extrapolate data from now and say that will be the future. So what I do is say, okay, let's look at what has happened in the past. Let's look at what is happening now. And from that, let's pull out some understanding about patterns or cycles and say, how can we extrapolate those cycles or you know, the emergence of new trends and use a little bit of creativity to say, here are several different ways that these patterns could look in the future. Um, what does that mean for the way that we operate now? So it's taking a leap a little bit, a creative leap, rather than saying, I'm just going to copy and paste in the future, which I know is a ultra simplification of what forecasting is, but um, I like to think about it more as a creative inference rather than a extrapolation. So what's your recommended process for future casting and strategic foresight? Like any process, I'd say, um, actually I'd say it's more of an approach. Mm -hmm. So I, I change the way that I work with different groups based on what it is we're trying to solve. So if we are trying to be you know, provocative and just kind of put out something wild, you know, I did a project last year that was looking at how might we just totally upend how we engage with consumers, even if we don't have any of their data, if they don't have an account with us, you know, what might that first engagement look like? And we went pretty wild out into like, you know, some haptic technology that doesn't exist yet, some projection technology, integration into cars and stuff like that. Um, and that was purely provocative. So it was very much a, let's do some research about what we think these consumers are doing now. Let's make some scenarios that are out there. Let's try to figure out how to visualize that. And then let's project that to the company to help stimulate more ideas. The other end of that is, for example, you know, what might we have to do to future-proof our businesses in the case of the autonomous vehicles mm -hmm. um, and particularly the loan business. Um, and that's much more of a business case mm -hmm. question to say, okay, it's not about creating crazy futures, it's actually asking the right question about what will change and then say, okay, what might our responses to those changes be from a business case, from an organizational case, um, and from the way that we organize our, our services. So. I think approach changes based on the question that's being asked and the ultimate outcome. Um, and so there's a wide range of different ways to go about that. I saw on your website um, you had a number of, uh, of processes laid out with some diagrams, uh, mm -hmm. some very near and dear to perception's heart, like mm -hmm. design fiction, science fiction, prototyping. Yeah. Um, there, was a, there was a whole bunch of them. Can you talk about any of, any of those in particular? Yeah, I mean Oh my gosh, you hit on science fiction prototyping. That's one of my favorites. Um, my good friend and, and colleague and ex-professor, Brian David Johnson, um, we work together. I, I have his book on my shelf. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he, as you know, he is the um, inventor of science fiction prototyping. And I love it because inherently as humans, we tell stories. So we tell stories about our past. We tell stories about what happened to us, you know, last night at dinner to our friends. We tell stories about what's happening now. You guys know this in the line of work that you are sure. in. Sure. So why don't we tell stories about the future? And, and that's kind of what you guys do, right? Is mm -hmm. talk about what might be. Um, so we, Brian broke that down into a, a series of exercises that are really easy to take people through to say, okay, let's use some, you know, trends, some influencing, you know, effects that could then push us out to the future and then tell a story about a person 
in a place with a challenge in the future. Let's humanize it so we can actually understand that story better. Um, and it seems so simple, but it's rooted in some neuroscience, actually, because our brains, as humans, we think about the future with the same area of the brain that we think about a stranger. So it's really hard for us to think about ourselves in the future because we inherently think about a stranger. So how do we humanize the future? We have to tell stories about it to make it more human. Um, and that's a really nice way to get people who are unused to doing uh, some futures work a little more comfortable with what that means for us, what it means for humankind, or let's say a business case. So I love that one. Um, I also really enjoy, from a research tool, using the STEEP methodology. And that's not just used in foresight, but I think it's really useful. Um, sometimes when we think about what might happen in the future, we, we get pretty myopic. We think about like, all right, what's gonna happen in, in the financial industry, for ex example. Um, and I think STEEP is really helpful to say, it's not just about the financial industry, it's about the world in which the financial industry lives, for instance. Mm -hmm. So STEEP stands for social, technological, economic, ecological, and political. And that helps you scan many different inputs to then create an understanding of what influencing effects might be for, let's say, the financial industry. So it broadens your horizons for what might be happening in the world and how those shifts might impact you. So I like that as a research tool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then I can give another quick example. CLA, or causal layered analysis, I used with another futurist, Jake Dunnigan, at South by Southwest last year in a work session for 20 mayors across the United States. We brought them all in to say, okay, how can we integrate foresight into you know, civic governance? And so we used causal layered analysis, which is a process of asking, you know, what's happening? What's the litany layer? What's happening in your city right now? And kind of putting some facts down. Hmm. And then looking all the way down through several layers towards getting at the myths and metaphors of your city. You know, what might be kind of something that embodies your city as a, as a myth or a metaphor that then we can use to tell other stories about the future and still maintain that core of your city, right? So it's much more of a long-term um, and almost like a, a brand personality kind of exercise to say, how can we embody new futures for your city while maintaining that core kind of nugget about who and what you represent? Um, that was a really fun exercise. I worked with Portland, Oregon's mayor, Ted Wheeler, to look at Futures for Portland, Oregon, which happens to be my birthplace. So that was exciting and fun. Uh, we ended up making some artifacts from the future for each city in the form of a poster about what 2030 might look like in each of these cities. Um, so another small little example of how that can come to life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, of, of course, we, we have storytelling throughout uh, the DNA of perception here with, with the projects we work on. And now it's become more about, you know, the worlds that we create because of exactly what you're saying. You know, we're doing these these stories to humanize the, the future of, you know, for, for everybody. And then, you know, what does that look like, for example, when we're doing an autonomous uh, car project? You know, we're doing a use case for one specific person, but then that car might drop that person off and then how does that car then interact with the city that it's now driving around mm -hmm. you know by itself in and then so on and so forth so um, yeah. one of the ones that that i found interesting uh was the thing from the future yeah can you add, can good. can you explain that one sure um so that was actually created by Stuart candy 
and he's another futurist, um, a good friend of Jake Dennigan's. And what that is actually a deck of cards that it comes from four, it has four different sections. Um, actually, do you mind if we pause for one second and I grab that so sure. I can, I don't mess it up one second. It's on my desk. No worries. Sure. Take your time. Okay, so there are four different types of cards. There's the terrain card, which is your location. Is it on a planet or is it in a courthouse or a mall or something? Um, there's the arc card, which is, you guys know, alternative futures. It's kind of the growth, collapse, um, constraint, or transformation. So there's four different archetypes you can use. And that also comes, you know, those art cards also have a timeline associated with it. So a millennium from now or a generation from now or a decade from now. Right. The third one is an object. So it could be a trend or a law or a vehicle. And the fourth one is mood. So what mood do we want to elicit with this thing? It could be solace or otherworldliness or unease. Mm-hmm or excitement or something. And you pull one of each of these types of cards and then you write a scenario using that. So let's say our terrain was a farm, our arc was transformation a millennium from now, our object was a law, and our mood was awkwardness or something. So we'd have to write a scenario about a farm millennial, a millennium from now with an awkward law that has transformed things. So what would that scenario look like? It's really fun, right? So wow. just as an interesting way of like shoving you into this other place of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically you play with a group and then you kind of like compete for the best scenario. Um, that's best as relative to whomever is running mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the game. But I like to use it as an icebreaker um, as well as just a fun time, <laughs> you know, kind of filler. If I have some time at work, I'll just kind of pull one or two. Mm-hmm. Keep you sharp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my knife sharpener tool. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm curious, going through all these processes and and, uh, and and everything you do as a futurist, what does the final output actually look like uh, for you, whether it's when you're working at Capital One or for any of your other clients? What do you what what is the end result of all of the of all this work? You know, that is an often asked question and, and I never answer it the same way. Um, <laughs> uh, just like the approach, it, it varies pretty wildly from whomever I'm engaging with. Let's say it's for the threat casting lab, which you know, I'm partner with Brian David Johnson on. What we do is create all these scenarios and then we synthesize it into a publicly accessible report um, to say, hey, here are some threats of the future and here's what you can do about it, governments you know, cities, people, companies, nonprofits. Um, and so we synthesize that into actionable next steps that anyone could consume. For Capital so One... So it's conclusions, recommendations, and so forth? Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And then we try to make it actionable so it's not just like, here, read this stuff and ponder it. It's like, mm-hmm. no, here, read this stuff and think about it, but also, here's what you can do. Let's mm-hmm. tailor that so that we can actually be tangible next steps, not just... Um, 
you know, kind of metaphysical ponderings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that's really important. I think being able to translate interesting future scenarios that could be applicable and a wide range of topics into tangible next steps in the present is exactly why we need foresight. You know, that's, that is the link that makes foresight so useful. It's not just creating the scenarios, it's translating them so people now can actually make better decisions or take action or take next steps in the present. Um, so part of my work at Capital One, you know, I mentioned making a video for this you know, future of how, what we call pre-customers might engage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a video that we shot and edited and, and then it's an internal facing video right now. Um, for others, what we do is make recommendations for business cases and investments moving forward. So I have to connect what might happen in the future with what are we already investing in? Let's look at what those trajectories might look like and then say, hey, here's some organizational shifts that we should be considering. Here are some additional investments we should be considering. Um, and here's what that will get us. So a lot of um, strategic reports and and directional next steps is really what happens with those. And the third is um, product teams that we should be creating. So I can't talk in too much detail about this one, but um, we are looking at creating a, an entire system internally. And that stemmed from a scenario I wrote several years ago, which then turned into a team, which then turned into an actual product and project. Hmm. So it, it stems from fun video to like report to business next steps to actionable team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Just based off of your background, you know, if you're from from school and and what you studied, um, do you are you a sci a sci fi nut? But you yes. know, okay. So much. <laughs> what are uh, what are some of your um, films or books that you uh, that you like to see more than once? <laughs> um, you know, I have to say, I. This isn't. This is less sci-fi, more fantasy. But I have always been a Lord of the Rings. Like no, I love, love it, mm-hmm. and I know these weird facts about it. I could totally um, go on and on about Lord of the Rings. I loved it as a as a kid. More recently, I've been more into books just because I tend to travel so much that I grab a book and read it on the plane, and and um, have gone that route more recently. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites is. Um, I have a couple. New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, he's just an amazing character developer. And that book stems, you know, as you can probably tell from the title, in New York in 2140. And the premise is that sea levels have risen 50 feet. And so all of lower Manhattan is in an intertidal zone, hmm. which has fundamentally changed the infrastructure, interactions, you know, livability of that entire downtown area of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he goes through, you know, this kind of, it's a little bit of a mystery, but like this life of people that live in this intertidal zone, building characters, kind of talking about the technology that enables the buildings to stand up through these crazy title changes. Um, you know, looking at what real effects might have, what might be in that new changed world. Um, so I love that book. I also really enjoy Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson that came out maybe two years ago now. Um, and that looks at humanity and the change in humanity over a span of 5,000 years in this book. And, and the premise in the beginning is, sounds a little wild, but 
the moon explodes. <laughs> so the moon breaks up for some reason into seven different pieces called seven Eves. And that causes a whole chain reaction of pretty much Armageddon on Earth, right? So, you know, the surface of the Earth is no longer livable. What do humans do? The majority of the book looks at, you know, we build this ring in outer space. We now have to live in this ring around the Earth. And maybe there's a whole governance structure that emerges from that. And there's different factions. And how do we go down and check if Earth is now livable again? Mm -hmm. um, and I won't reveal the endings. It's so great. But um, it looks at how human beings have evolved over the last 5,000 years, things we've developed, governance structures that we've you know, recreated or evolved. Um, so that's an, that's an excellent one. So is that yeah. where you get a lot of your inspiration and insight, or are there other, um, you know, do you, do you go to the museum and, you know, look at things differently than, than anybody else that actually visits? <laughs> well, I think um, I'm a naturally curious person, so mm -hmm. I like to intake a lot of different types of inspiration. So, yeah, I mean, I work right across the street from the SF MoMA. Um, I try to go there as often as I can, which is not as often as I would like, but at least it's, you know, once or twice a month. And um, I read, you know, business books. I read technology books. I read sci-fi. Sometimes I read, you know, pop magazines because it's interesting to think about how, you know, I hate to say, like, others, like, the common society, like, everyday people are thinking about, like, What's happening with Kim Kardashian? You know, sure. like, wow. <laughs> you know? It's like a sociological uh, experiment. Yep. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I tend to just kind of follow tangents a little bit sometimes and see where it takes me, or I'll pick up, you know, a new scientist um, and check out you know, what is being evolved on a, on a scientific level, because that's kind of been a lot of breakthroughs recently. Mm -hmm. um, and it's more about exploring implications for me rather than following one set repeatable research path. Mm -hmm. um, more recently, I've been thinking about accessibility in cities. And you know, I think you know, cities really haven't been designed for anyone outside the age ranges of 16 and 80. You know, if you think about crosswalks, really terribly designed. <laughs> like, you can't get across in that like blinking eight seconds if you're over 80, then what do you do? You just get honked at? You're like, in the middle of the street? That, that's right. not great. Yep. Um, so I've been thinking about city accessibility, particularly, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, with the advent and ubiquitous adoption potentially of autonomous vehicles, how does that change our civic structure? You know, where do these cars go? How do we, as humans, navigate dense downtown populated areas mm -hmm. in a infrastructure? Um, I think that's fascinating. I think there's a lot of design work to come on that front. Um, haptic sidewalks, you know, self charging streets, new material invents. Um, so for me, it's it's less about what do I read? It's more about how does it help me ask fundamental questions about how humans interact with society um, in different lenses. I think we'll start seeing a lot of changes there. So you're you're obviously in the in the financial industry as a futurist. What are some mm -hmm. other industries that are now tapping into futures as well and what are some industries that you think could use more of it yeah i think the financial industry is just now tapping into foresight and i think it's um apt timing because you know with the rise of fintech startups there's gonna be a big shakeup in the financial industry in the next 
decade or so. Um, you know, medical is another one. They're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, we just saw the release of the first surgeon robot recently, um, which still is not available from a budgetary perspective. But the, the, the Da Vinci from Intuitive Surgical? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, I think what needs to happen, I, I feel pretty strongly about this, is that government needs to have, like, a chief futurist <laughs> in the cabinet, mm -hmm. uh, presidential cabinet. I think that is necessary. The challenge there is that our our terms are so short that it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense now if people are thinking about, okay, how do I get reelected in you know, two years? The maximum really is about eight years if you have two terms back to back, um, which isn't all that long in futurist terminology. So how do we make that kind of long-term inquiry part of a short-term term? Right. Um, yep. Big question, but I think it's necessary if we're going to compete in the long term just to to be dramatic, save planet Earth, you know, if we're going to actually make some changes. Sure. Moving further out. Um, and I think education needs some some foresight. This is the kind of the big four. So for me, finance and finance industry, education, medical and government, those four really need it. Um, Kind of fundamental to our survival right now as humans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those are kind of the basic of the Maslow's. Um, so I think we need to start looking much more deeply at how we can future-proof those industries and continue to involve them, even though one, they're highly regulated, and two, they're steeped in tradition. So, can you talk a little bit about your book, What the Foresight? Sure. So that was. Um, that stemmed from a question that Julia Rose West, my co-author, and I asked, which is around how do we make futures more accessible? Right now, you know, that futures, thinking about the future is a, a privilege. A lot of people have to think about how am I going to make rent or where am I going to get my food from? And so thinking about the future is just not something that is easily done by a large portion of this population of America. Um, so we started questioning, how can we make it more accessible? How can we make you know, quick little exercises to help people think better about their futures? And it's really important. So we started testing these little work sections in this book, just kind of drafting them up and took them out on the street you know, in San Francisco and asked people to fill them out and prototype them with us. And our goal there was to say, we want to make five minute little workshops on futures so that anyone could apply a futures thinking mindset to their life. So we put this book together to say, hey, let's explain what foresight is. Let's also give people a place to workshop their own futures by taking them through this kind of kit of parts. Um, so it was really fun. It was a great process. You know, got to talk to some really interesting people um, in Dolores Park in San Francisco, you know, on the streets of the mission, and just kind of see how asking very, you know, simple but probing questions about, you know, what do you, what is your biggest fear that would happen? What's your dystopic future kind of thing? Um, seeing what kind of reactions that brought out because it, it served the purpose of us actually having better and deeper conversations. You know, one of my coworkers did it, um, and he did it with it separate from his wife. They both did it independently, and they spoke about them together. And he came to me the next week. He's like that was the best conversation I've ever had with my wife about our future together because we actually had something to base 
our conversation structure on structure for it. So that was amazing. Yeah. Mm. Um, that was a really fun process, and I I continually, you know, get little emails or questions from people being like, "This was a great way to talk to my spouse or my, you know, family or whatever about my future." Um, which kind of brings warmth to my heart, and it was originally targeted at, you know recent high school graduates who thought, oh, this is a great place for them to start thinking about where their future might take. And we didn't expect that people who are recently retired also really loved this book because now they have a whole new take on life. You know, how am I going to structure my time moving forward? What does that look like? Um, so it was a really interesting project to see what resonated with whom and, and why. It was really fun. So, you know, between your uh, skill set and the world of perception, you know, there's a, a ton of similarities. Do you see uh, a wave of uh, companies, you know, reaching out to, you know, futurists or, or uh, you know, uh, a company like Perception to figure out what their future's going to look like and help them with, you know, a roadmap for that? Visualizing it. Yeah, I think, um, I think we're probably still a few... A little ways off from people readily accepting that we need to think better about the future. I think right now we're, you know, looking at potentially, <laughs> not to scare anyone, but looking at a potentially an economic downturn in 2019. We'll see about that, but we're kind of prepping for that now. Um, so that may not come next year. <laughs> but I do think that as people start thinking, companies start thinking more about, hey, how can we kind of future proof ourselves in a rapidly shifting marketplace yeah totally i also think that just like design firms um you know started being acquired and brought internally i think a strategic inquiry about the future will start to be an important part of corporations and businesses everywhere um i think that's what leadership should be asking it's like how do we how do we really make informed or at least um you know, considered decisions about where the future of our companies or agencies or organizations might go. Mm-hmm. So I think we can see both agency work and internal strategic work happening. Mm-hmm. So uh, what? last question, what are you uh, working on now that you're most excited about that you can share with us? Well, so just before we got on the phone together, um, has informed I was accepted at South by Southwest to talk about... Congratulations. Thank you. Um, we're going to be talking about how transhumanism can enable data privacy. Um, and I'm really excited about this topic because it's weird and it's really important. So with you know GDPR and PSD2, these two regulations in the UK right now, looking at changing the way one we um, own and use data and who owns it, um, I think that we're going to have some pretty significant shifts in the U.S. in the next few years about, you know, how do we manage use of our private data, of our personally identifiable and valuable information. Um, this is definitely coming to a head with Cambridge Analytica and, you know, Facebook in the last yep. several months. Um, and so I think there's actually a, a usefulness as we're being continually tracked and kind of monitored and there's space tracking technology. How can we flip the paradigm to say, hey, I want to actually create you know, individual terms of use for my data and companies will have to abide by it. 
So instead of us signing on to Facebook and saying, yep, okay, terms of agreement, great, maybe Facebook has to come to us and say, hey, you know, what data can we use? And we have to allow them access to it. Um, so I think that could be enabled by several different things. a little more uh, participation and proactiveness from the individual then. It is, or it could be an initial setup, you know, and then based on, let's say, an implant that's being tracked and could be ubiquitous across any kind of service, it automatically knows, right? So you have what your personal you preferences set from the beginning for all of these platforms. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that is a, a realistic future. Um, you know, or imagine that Black Mirror episode, I think it was season three, um, called White Christmas, where you could be like face blind, but for data, like you could just have like this invisibility cloak on. Um, that's another potential if you have data scrubbing blockers, you know, so I think there's a whole spectrum of things we could start experimenting with to feel more protective and more, um, you know, much more invisible from the prying eyes of large data. I think it'll start to, to propagate in the next few years, but I think it's an interesting area of inquiry about how we manage our own data better because right now everything is data money you know ordering food sending communications what we're doing right now over skype all just data so. well it sounds fascinating I, i'd love to uh to be there and, and hear the the talk in person you should come it'll be fun march in austin awesome <laughs> well alita thank you so much for this this was this was amazing we really appreciate your time this is a fascinating conversation. Um, where can people uh, find you online? You know, this may not come as a surprise, but I've started getting off of a lot of social media platforms. Um, I am available on LinkedIn, or you can send me an email at alida at whattheforesight.com, wtforesight.com. Thank you so much for being on the Perception Podcast. Anytime. Thanks for having me, you guys. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.